today my guest is professional golfer Keith Mitchell. We met in Los Angeles right outside the Sid Mashburn store, who we refer to on a first name basis only. We talk about golf, life on the PGA Tour, but also watches, style, and a lot of other good stuff. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We're at the Brentwood Country Mart, which is where I meet everyone all the time. I said I was going to Sid. You said I'll meet you at Country Mart. I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> you said it's literally where Sid is. <laughs> okay, well, that makes it easier. <laughs> but you were like a Sid customer for a long time, right? We have to like just jump right into the Sid stuff. Well, the Sid stuff started uh, back when I was in college. My roommate in college is Dad, who is I would I would like to say is a lodestar in terms of a lot of my. Uh, passions and enthusiasms. He's, this guy was, he's on point on all this stuff. He was the one who introduced me to Sid. Um, not necessarily Sid as a person, Sid as a store and everything. I guess they're, they, they're one and the same, but mm-hmm. so just fell in love with his clothes. So I'd always, you know, as a college student, you know, you're just buying jeans here or there. I remember I started with the dyed Levi's and then, um, then I got some of those popovers, and believe it or not, those popovers probably eight years old. Like, you know, I'm not kidding. It's like one of the first things I ever bought from Sid, and I bought it because I felt like it was casual. It could go with anything. The price point was, you know, affordable for a college student, yeah. relatively speaking, and I've loved it ever since. So I'd, I'd kind of started my relationship that way. I met Alex in the store completely organically, just walked in, and he was the guy that helped me and became friends. Um, I remember I needed a suit. I was in the business school and like you had to take professional pictures and stuff. And so <laughs> I went and got a, uh, a charcoal gray shark skin suit. And then, you know, I needed a, a tuxedo. And so I was like, well, I'll go get a tuxedo. And then like these little things just led to a relationship with Sid. And it finally, um, long, long story was that I had new sponsors that I technically outbid Nike at the time. So I had a clothing opportunity open. I'd been friends with Alex and Sid, loved all their stuff. Sent him an email one day. I was like, hey, you think this could work? We went in Sid's like underground, like cave office area. In the West <laughs> the Island. bunker? Yeah, it was just so cool, by the way. And just did this whole, we spent probably three or four hours together trying on stuff, seeing if it would work. You know, they're apologizing because they have no idea what's going on in golf. I'm apologizing because like I've just had everything just shipped to me in a box. You know, we're trying to make this thing work. And then now, over two years later, like we're, I feel like we've just scratched the surface on what we can do with the brand and golf. Do you feel like you have much more freedom now in terms of how you look and you seem very much like connoisseur, like you're into these things naturally. You care about what you wear and you like know the details and you're much more focused on that than I think a lot of people probably would expect someone that plays in the PGA Tour to be. But do you feel like you have more flexibility with the way that your sponsor relationship is and like with the way you're doing your clothes with Sid. It is definitely a, a huge bonus to be able to do that stuff with Sid. I was just in the store here, and we were laying out summer fabrics of all the different patterns and all the different pants, deciding if we wanted cuffs, pleats, flat fronts, side tabs, side buttons, side buckles, you know, belt loops, you know, everything down to the exactly how we want the pants. And for me, that's fun. Like a lot of people would think that's work. It's mm-hmm. it's just tactical, logistical work. And for me, that's like fun design. <laughs> so yeah, to answer your question, a lot of people, especially in my line of work, would rather just have it show up, put it on, and go to work. And for me, like I simply enjoy the craftsmanship mm-hmm. and the design aspect of those things. And so I think that's why it works very, very authentically. 
I could probably have a whole podcast about pants. <laughs> like, talk to you the whole time about pants, which is, like, a bizarre and, like, hilarious thing to probably say. But has, like, anyone along the way been like, how are you playing in wool pants? Everyone always asks me how hot <laughs> my pants are. And then that leads me to the explanation of why they're not hot. And Sid taught me well. I will have to give him all the credit because... I thought they were dress pants, and I liked the way dress pants look. Well, now, after spending two years, like, in the think tank with Sid, of what we should wear, why we should wear it, and how we should wear it, mm -hmm. like, you learn so much. And I enjoy the process of learning so much that now when somebody asks, I can explain why they're not necessarily that way, or why this works here, this doesn't work here, et cetera. Like, those high-twist pants that we have, I think Fox Brothers, it might be a Fox Brothers fabric. I mean, I yeah, could Fox be wrong. Um, I could be wrong on the, who makes the fabric, but it's an English high twist pant they look dense and they look uh they have the little heathered look as well so they you know a lot of people contribute heathered to mm -hmm. uh cold weather mm -hmm. well these the, the weave is so wide and so coarse that you can almost see through the bottoms of them when you hold them in a certain light so they're extremely breathable so when you show somebody that they're like oh that makes sense mm -hmm. i think like people have gotten i think quasi brainwashed by like a lot of these bigger athletic focused brands that you know people think like everything needs to be performance and, yeah performance right and the reality is like that stuff doesn't actually let your body cool you right because it's just taking all the moisture and like pulling it away from your skin and like you never actually cool down well, the way i look at golf and probably play you know, well, I, I know the way i play in like my version of golf and your version of golf very different but i could wear my regular clothes most of the time you can take like certain considerations that are small like this fabric or you know, the way that you're layering or the way you're thinking about fabric for an event and make it work for you. But it takes a little bit of an open mind. And I think everyone's just, if it's not like a polyester shirt, it's not going to work for me. I wouldn't say I was completely on that side, but I was definitely starting to get that way for a while, um, wearing certain clothes. And I learned that performance wear doesn't show sweat and it doesn't get heavy when it's hot. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people equate to just not showing sweat as, oh, this is performance wear, it's great. Where like, if you wear a, a, a cotton shirt and you're sweating, you can see the sweat because it's there, which it's there for a reason, yeah. it's to pull you off. Yeah. You know, there's some give and take there in the aesthetic. Yeah. I've seen tons of pictures of you though, playing in events, seeing you on TV, like you don't ever seem like you're struggling with like it's a not, cotton polo. People ask me all the time, I was like, you, I would not do this if it cost me <laughs> shots on the golf course. But I do specifically wear the really light colors in the summer. Mm -hmm. I wear the baby uh, blue or, you know, the pale blue, pale pink, baby blue um, and white exclusively in the summer. A, because they're light colors, they don't show sweat even if you do sweat. and. Um, I have some, a dark green and a navy that I love wearing in the morning rounds or whatever. But, you know, if you do wear that shirt in the summer, it does, you do sweat a little bit more. It does show some sweat. Yeah. And they get a little heavy. But the way that Sid makes his shirts, you know, I feel like we're on a Sid podcast. But <laughs> the way that he makes his shirts is the way the weave and the piquet is. Like, they don't necessarily get sticky and they don't get heavy. Mm -hmm. And that's what people equate to the old, like, mercerized cotton like, I remember when Peter Millar and Fairway and Greens came out with that real silky, shiny cotton. It looked great. Yeah. But as soon as you stepped out over 85 degrees, it just stuck to you. <laughs> and you could see, like, waves yeah. and, yeah. like, salt waves on the shirts. And, like, 
that's what people equate to cotton now, where that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. I don't think cotton's ever going to really make the big comeback. You know, I think there's certain purists like around golf that are like, I only wear cotton and whatever. And I think it's going to be a really hard sell to get people away from the performance fabrics, but... Especially because of the wrinkle aspect, too. You just yeah. wash them, throw them in the dryer, and they come out fine. Yeah. You got to actually care for cotton. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, wrinkles... I have, like, a weird take on the wrinkly thing where if a shirt's totally perfect and fully wrinkle-resistant, right, the fabric is coated or if it's treated or, if, you know, whatever it is, to me, like, that just looks really fake. I think wrinkles are, like, part of life and, you know, everything shouldn't look perfect and uniform and whatever. I think, like, there's just no like, expression to that. So do you consider yourself a connoisseur in many things? I would say all things. And Are you very particular? About certain things and, so, and about others, not at all. One thing I've become particular about, it was funny, I was talking about my wife about this morning, is there's a coffee shop in the hotel we're staying, and she's like, what do you want? I said, well, if they have a cortado on the menu, order it. If they don't have a cortado on the menu, and they have a flat white on the menu, just order the flat white. Because you can always tell a coffee shop by what they have on the menu, and the ounces next to it to know if it's legit or not. Like you get a flat white at Starbucks and they ask you what size you want. You're like, well, flat white's only one size. A cortado's only one size. <laughs> yeah. And I've gotten to the point where I, <laughs> I, I care about the quality and, the, and what it is. It's like, it, it just feels almost, it feels wrong when it's not right. Yeah. And so I, I kind of kicked myself like, you know, I'm, I'm fine with drip coffee too. Like, it's not a big deal, but <laughs> for that something that morning, I was like, oh, I'm in LA, they're gonna have a great coffee shop. Like this is how I want it. Yeah. And I just, I get to the point where I like learning so much. I'm often overly passionate about things that <laughs> I go so deep down the What's your coffee hole. program at home? Well, I have a Ratio Chemex mm -hmm. and I have a Breville. And Are you like insane like weighing out? Oh yeah, I have the scale, I have the grinder. <laughs> and, Wait, you, don't you, have, know, you, you have kids or you don't have kids? I don't kids? have kids. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, I mean, that's I like yeah. the, one of the first things you abandon, I feel like, when you have kids. If the coffee is like not set up the night before, there's like a 50% chance I won't be able to like get it together to make it. You know? I, I'm the guy that it, the Breville has the automated frother. Mm -hmm. I, I still do it manually. <laughs> like that just shows you how I feel about all that stuff. And and I'll make a cup if I don't if, if the espresso didn't come out at the right time or the right pressure, I'll throw it out and make another <laughs> one. And, That's cool. And well, it's 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 fun, but it also there's a point in time of diminishing return and effort. Especially, like you said, like when you had kids. But, like, if I don't have anything to do that morning, I just want a really good cup of coffee. Like, what's an extra two or three minutes and try yeah. to make it right? Yeah. You know, I, I lived in New York for a really long time and, like, almost never made coffee because, you know, there's always all these great coffee shops everywhere on your way to work right. really easy. But now I'm kind of of the mindset where it's like, I'm surprised more people just don't make coffee at home and mm -hmm. take the time to make real coffee if they can. Why have to, like, go to a coffee shop to get coffee? I'm, I've got to the point where. I'll go to a coffee shop that I know is way better than my coffee at mm -hmm. home just because of the quality of the machine, the quality of the beans, the freshness yeah. of the beans, you know, how they can froth the milk better. But to me now, you, you, know, you pass a level of like, I'm not going to go pay extra for something that's not as good. Yeah. And that, that's, that's where I get bothersome a little bit. Again, a lot of people just, the coffee's to use caffeine to wake them up. And that's fine. Yeah. You know, a lot of people just put a jacket on to stay warm. That's fine too. Yeah. But like I'm, I'm putting a jacket on because I don't. It's it's to stay warm, but it's also to I don't know. Never be satisfied with something that's that could be better. And yeah. I guess that's a way to look at it. And 
and it always is. It's, it, t- it takes a level of passion to be that good at anything. It doesn't matter if it's coffee, golf, clothes, you know, the restaurant we just ate at. It takes a level of passion and dedication to make something better than someone else. And I just feel like I have an appreciation for that because in my line of work in golf, we have to work so hard and perfect our craft in an arts and a science way, whether it's technology and the clubs you're using or the arts and the shots you choose and the reading, the greens. Like you have to put that sort of effort, passion, enthusiasm to my work to become the best, Mm -hmm. where I appreciate someone that does that in their own line of work as well. Do you feel like that's like the underlying part of your personality, your drive, your perfectionism, or your like dedication to put do the work to improve to the level that you, you've attained, right, to achieve success? Do you feel like that's just something that you had as a little kid? I feel like it's like a pretty daunting thing to say, you know, I want to play professional golf. I definitely think that has a lot to do with it. But the cool thing about me... Because you seem really laid back is is the reason that I say that. Because part of me would think you would have to be one of the most intense people. I am very intense. And I'm very intense and, and situational. I treat my business like Keith Mitchell LLC and my off-course stuff with my sponsors extremely intensely. I treat my golf... Um, while I'm on the course intensely, like a lot of my buddies say, when I'm out practicing and hanging out, like I'm all good. But as soon as I tee off on the first hall of the tournament, it's like a totally different person. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like I, I kind of switch it on and off. Do you feel like you much. can you can control it though? I definitely think I do turn it on. I felt like I turned it on when I was just at the coffee shop the other day when it was <laughs> completely unnecessary. So finding times to turn it on and turn it off are definitely, um, I'm not as good at that, but I always turn it on on the first tee. I always turn it on and in um, you know business meetings with sponsors and stuff, and you know I, I try to find ways to be laid back. I would say I'm more intense often than I'm not, and I feel like the older I get, the more intense I get because like I realize the significance of my job and the fact that I could lose my job in three months, four months, just because not. So you just kind of become more aware, and the more aware you come, the more intense you become. And, it's definitely a balance that I, I I struggle with sometimes. Is that always in the back of your head? Like, are you? Do you feel like it's looming that like you could sort of like lose your job or be off the tour or whatever? If you always, and I think that's what helps drives my intensity level to get better. Mm-hmm. And you know, competition. If you competition makes everyone better, and we have the most intense competition on the PGA Tour. Like, there's no guaranteed contracts. There's nothing. It's like you just earn what you keep. And back to what we said, like drives me. And a lot of, in golf, a lot, and then other things as well. Do you feel like that's like a big appealing aspect of going to another tour or doing something else where it's guaranteed? It's like you don't have to live with the pressure of that? There's definitely times when that's, that is, uh, it crosses your mind, but at the same time, like I enjoy that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the competition, I enjoy the growth and the learning and the, you know, the constant drive. Like I've always said, like if I, could retire right now, what the hell would I do? I'd have to channel this some way, shape, or form, and I can barely channel it now. So like, what what, what would I imagine doing? If you're like, all right, you're good, now what? Like yeah. I would just, I'd probably go spend all that money and starting in some other business and just putting all my time and effort into that, so. You can start a coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> what, do, you, do you feel like you take that as like a healthy outlet, like are, are watches like a healthy outlet for that? Uh, like it's a healthy outlet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, it just seems like. It's an addiction, I would say. <laughs> but it's, 
it's so funny because like everybody talks about social media and all the things, spending too much time on. If you look at my social media, it's just all like researchable things. Like my <laughs> wife and I bought a, a lot and we're getting ready to build a house. Now my social media is just littered with architecture, whether it's, you know, new modern homes to places in Italy, like where you just got back from. And it's yeah. all the, the everything from a door handle to a window frame to a fireplace and like I'm screenshotting them I'm putting them aside and picking apart the different details of the fireplace mantle to you know watches to vintage to new to what's my next watch what's what's a grail watch you know, <laughs> what's your grail watch oh man that's, I got I got, I got all of them but I would say a 5004 for sure wow yeah. uh, uh, you know there's a couple piece unique 5004s out there that I've come across with the same dial that I'd put a like a midnight blue suede strap on that would just be game changer. But you know, that's <laughs> that's what I that's how I use social media is for information consuming. Like you know you can go to Houdini, you can go to you know Architectural's websites, and I'll go to those once I, where I can after I find them on Instagram, like either find a hashtag or find their account. I'll go through them and look at them that way. But I don't I don't use it for like what's so and so doing. Mm-hmm. I look at it as an informational learning grab. You feel like you are getting a lot of interesting things from that? No. No. <laughs> no. It's just something to, something to fill my, my time and capacity with that I don't feel like is a complete waste of time, even though it's definitely not the best use. What does your wife think about like the watch, like the watch obsession? Um, I think she's gotten to the point where she just kind of lets it be. Are you buying your wife watches? I, I already have, <laughs> and I've we've been talking about hers for so long. I wouldn't, you know, buy her another one. Part of it's out of you know guilt, and the other part of it's because I enjoy them so much that I would enjoy her having one. And she likes them because I like them. She like you know she's a girl. She likes jewelry. It's yeah. just how it is, <laughs> and she kind of can channel in that way. But we've looked at so many, and like every week, her mind changes because she doesn't really have a. I would call it a true passion. Like she likes mm-hmm. them and she like likes design. So I like that one. That one's pretty. That one's pretty. But then, you know, six in a row, she just likes pretty. I was like, well, which one do you want? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, what are you guys like considering? Like Daytona? I mean, she she has a Cartier tank and she loves it. She yeah. wears it all the time when she's not wearing her Apple Watch. And, you know, you you have the quintessential, you know, the day dates that um, or 36. She she's tried on a bunch of my 40s, and she says small wrist. And she, she every time she she might like a 40, but it's only for like a day or two, and then she goes back to 36. So anything, anything in that 33 to 36 range, you know, they even have a couple Nautilus out there that are like that. Yeah, that's cool. And um, and and at the end of the day, like she's only looking at what I show her, so <laughs> it's kind of a loaded a loaded yeah, view yeah. of what I like and hope she likes, but it, it's. It's a constant, uh, for me, it's when I'm sick of looking at watches that I want, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll do this for her. And she's like, you know, I care, but like, I really don't care that much. Yeah, that's like my wife's favorite joke. When we got married, I stopped buying myself watches like to the, you know, maybe at the frequency that I was before we got married. And then I started buying her watches and whatever. And she's like, oh, I think he just does it because he like wants to buy watches. <laughs> but I'm like, oh no, it's good. I want you to have these watches, you know? It's, I feel the same way, but it, she, I guess I'm glad she doesn't have the same passion as me or else we'd just be like, have a small house and, you know, tons of watches <laughs> or vice versa or whatever. So. It was funny because I saw you in Scotland. Which was so random. By yeah. Me. Like, I knew we'd met over email and over the phone. And then I'm just walking on the fairway. I was like, hi, guys, by the way, I'm Keith. And you're like, we know. I'm like, what do you mean you know? I was like, we've talked. <laughs> 
I was with I was at the Genesis right. show up in which you were playing in. With all that stuff, I'm like, the last thing I want to do is bother him because I don't want to be annoying. And they give us a, the option to walk inside the ropes, and so I was like, oh, we can go with him. So. I feel, I feel like it was like four holes in or something. Eventually you came back to, hey, and then we, we were chatting and whatever. And, you, and I was like surprised that kind of didn't phase you at all. Like you were just like, oh, yeah, cool. Nice to meet you and very personal and weren't totally stressing out or whatever. I don't know what was going on at the in the tournament at that point. Though. I mean, golf's more of an activity than it is a sport. So it's <laughs> not like I'm out of breath or uh, you know I'm trying to yeah. get stretched or cramped. Like <laughs> we play, let's call it for easy numbers, five hours. You're intently focused on your shot for probably two minutes. You hit 70 shots, hopefully less. You know, you're, what are you gonna do the rest of the time, right? Like, you got all this time to fill. Mm -hmm. And if you can fill it with positive things or mindless things, and mm -hmm. it, it keeps your mental capacity stronger longer. Um, it's just like, I mean, think about it as physical. You, you know, if you, I couldn't run for five hours, but I could run for, you know, two-minute stints in a five-hour period yeah. all the time. Like, if yeah. you strain your mental mind that much, which I've done plenty of times, then you're not doing yourself any favors down the road. So, yeah, if walking between shots, we want to talk about whatever, like, it's easy. Yeah, and you were, like, showing me your watch that you had in your bag, which was funny. That's, like, a big a big watch for you. That, that, was, like, that was a Grail watch that I didn't know was a Grail watch. <laughs> like, I was at Pebble Beach at my good friend uh, Josh's store. I'd been going to a store every year in Pebble Beach. Um, I knew a guy in Dallas named Duncan who was like, hey, you need to go to this watch store out in, in um, Carmel when you're there. And I was like, I've been to that store like two or three times. I actually had pictures on my phone from watches that I liked when I was there. This is like when I was a rookie on tour before I could even afford a watch, and I was taking pictures of them. He's like, well, Josh is the guy there. You need to meet him. And yeah. So like a friend in Dallas introduced you yeah, to Josh. Yeah, to Josh Bonifaz. And um, so we start talking, we start hanging out, and we hit it off. And speaking of guy that has good style, the guy's, I mean, the guy's dressed. Yeah. Looks like he's walking out of a GQ photo shoot every time he walks <laughs> in the store. And I gave him a hard time about it. But anyway, um, more out of envious or jealousy. But, um, he introduced me to this brand, Laurent Ferrier. And, I was, you know, I wouldn't call myself new to the game, but, you know, I've only, I was probably 20, last year, I, yeah, I guess I was 29 or 30 when he showed me the brand. I'd never really heard of him thought it was cool, but if I'd never heard of it, I was like, well, that's not something that a lot of other people are looking into, and it just didn't feel like it hit that, mm -hmm. the, the hype button for me at the mm -hmm. time. The more I started looking at them and researching them and learning about it, talk about passion, like all the rabbit holes lead <laughs> to something like yeah. F.P. Jorn, Laurent Ferrier, yeah. Roger, uh, Roger Smith, you know, you keep going, Philippe Dufour, you know, they just go down, that's where you yeah. find them. Right, yeah. that's like the end of the rabbit holes. It's like this, this throne, and these guys are sitting on it. So I've been talking to Josh and about him and wanting to find him. This and that, he got one in. He called me. He's like, "Hey, I got this one in. Do you want it?" I looked at the price. I was like, "God, that's expensive, but that is so cool. I think I'll take it." Was it like that quick, or was it like? I mean, me, I can probably find my text messages. Like, he he sent me a picture, and I was like, "I love that." He's like, "This is the price. Do you want it?" I was like. You know, I really think I do. I know they're hard to get, and I really like it, and I love the color. I've always wanted a green watch. Mm -hmm. And it's a jade dial, mm -hmm. which is even cooler. And I was like, yeah, I'll take it. And he goes, okay, by the way, it's a unique piece. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, it's, you know, says it on the paper, show me the papers, all this stuff. And then I was like, well, of course I'm gonna buy it now. <laughs> like, I, and the cool thing was like, I wanted a Laurent, I'd asked for a Laurent, I wanted a green watch. And he showed it to me, so I was like, yeah, this is what I want. Yeah. And then, after all that, that's what he said. 
And I was like, well, now, of course I'm going <laughs> Yeah, now you have to buy it. Certain brands brings out the real hardcore. If you or, know or a certain type is. of yeah. collector, right? You don't have to be hardcore. It's like, if you know who those guys are, then it sort of reveals certain types of watch people. Not only that, it just reveals your personality as a person. Like, you are someone who is passionate and enthusiastic about something. Yeah. Like, if you're passionate and enthusiastic about watches, you are clearly passionate and enthusiastic about something else, if not everything else mm -hmm. in your life. If you know what a Laurent Ferrier is, and let alone, if you know what even what a piece unique means mm -hmm. in general, mm -hmm. and the rarity and value of that in the watch world, then by all means. And to have that sort of holy grail of something that I didn't even knew, know was out there. The longer I have it, the more I appreciate it, the more I love it. The style, the shape, the movement, everything. It, it, it's something that, in essence, priceless, not only because there is one, and but also because of the amount of time and effort and passion that it took him to make that watch is, I feel, similarly to the amount of time and effort I put into my craft at the same time. Yeah, and then you feel like you're paying for something. You know, you're paying for that passion, the uniqueness of it. You're getting something really special. It's like probably a watch you'll just own forever. You know, I, I feel like a lot of watch collector people just focus on these three brands, right? It's only about that and like, you know, they're always like flipping stuff. That's like the game for them. Our sort of point of view on watches aligns more there where you're expressing your personal taste level or your sense of style or your point of view on the world, right, through the watches. And it's just a thing, like I'm wearing this JLC Reverso, right? And like Re Reverso for me was always the movements, like very special, the brand, it's like a very different beast than like a Cartier. And I don't want to say it's like one layer above, but like it's just different enough where people are kind of like, oh, what's that? Is that a like tank? And it's like, oh no, this is, you know, my wife actually gave me this watch, right? And I feel like there's a really nice opportunity with watches beyond like the investment aspect of it to like express your point of view or your personal style or the things that move you in the world, right? Which I feel like a lot of people miss out on. Definitely. And you, know, you start with the hype stuff at first. Like, oh, everybody wants a Daytona. Well, I want a Daytona. I mean, everybody I want a Daytona. Yeah. I think they're great. Yeah. Everybody wants a Nautilus. Well, they want them because they're good. Let's yeah. just be clear. Yeah. Like, yeah. they're great watches and they want a Royal Oak. And, you know, but that stuff will change in five to 10 years, right? Then it'll be the next one, then it'll be the next one. And whatever the hype is, is there's a reason for it, but it also, it, it also knows you means it's probably gonna change into something new, something, mm -hmm. the next thing. Mm -hmm. And when you find a brand that puts all their time and effort into quality and craftsmanship and timeless style, and you, you know, you find yourself down these Pass and Laurent Ferrier was, just happened to be the you know and Josh obviously showed me this I did not find this on my own and then after research this was like this is the peak yeah. of the cool stuff and one of my it's so funny one of my <laughs> best friends calls it a Lawrence Fulton because he, you know, he doesn't get it right he knows what a Rolex is yeah. and I was like this is my Laurent Ferrier and he couldn't remember he's like where's that Lawrence Fulton again <laughs> and that's just kind of like the the difference in the personalities of... I mean, I don't think you're going to say that to many people or say F.B. Jordan to many people and they're going to really, like, yeah. register <laughs> yeah. that, you know? It, it's um, definitely something that takes the passion to find it. Is this your daily driver that you're wearing today, this ceramic GMT? It is, and it is because of the, the application. It's a GMT. It's easy. Um, it works. When I'm, you know, I was in Hawaii. Um, I was in the West Coast. I'm all, we're all on the West Coast, and I'm from the East Coast, so I always keep the GMT hand on, on East Coast time on home, and yeah. on home time, and then the local time here. Like I have a, um, a 5164R, 
um, the Travel Time Aquanaut in rose gold, which is probably <laughs> the coolest watch. Like the, it's like the most sporty, elegant, fancy, quality, whatever you want to call it. It fits every category yeah. possible, as well as functional. Yeah. And I just I can't wear it on the road. Like it just just eats me. If I'm on the road for seven weeks, I feel like every time I look down at my wrist, I'd be like, I'd be scared. <laughs> um, it's not bulletproof because it's rose gold yeah. on, the, on the bezel, and this is ceramic. Like we, I could drop this on this brick pavement right here and be fine. That one probably not so much. So I wear that one on special occasions. I did take the Laurent over to the Scotland, it, but it's steel. It's got a leather strap. It's not as big as a deal. So just to close the loop on that story too. So I meet you on the fairway on like hole four or something at the Genesis. A couple holes later, you're like, come over here. And I walk over kind of the, to the fairway and you're like, pull it, pull the watch out of your bag. And you're talking to me about it on the fairway. I'm like, I honestly can't believe this is happening right now. Just be, it, it just felt like really surreal. Um, but it was cool. Like, you know, the excitement that you shared and just your approach to like dressing and wearing Sid and like willingness to do things different and you're just like general approachability. You've got a good differentiator in terms of all the ways that you're just like, I don't want to say like humanizing or being different and unique in this like sort of sea of sameness. I think it's really compelling and, and I think you deserve a lot of credit for, you know, sort of having the guts to do that. Thank you. I'll take, I'll, I'll first of all, thank you. <laughs> Uh, I think it's not easy to be different, right, and do things differently. Golf is like a pretty conformity-driven thing, too, right? Right, but a lot of the things, like, it's, it's not different for me. Like, it's just who I am, yeah. right? And I know that's probably a cliche, but my dad got me into a lot of these things, and people that I look up to and friends and stuff that care about, like, they're, they're passionate about the same sort of things. And maybe that's, I don't know which came first, but either way, that's how it is. And, and in golf, though, like, people think about golf, and they think of how you dress in golf, right? Like I, I would say golf now is moving more toward the athletic, but I, I would say over a, over the last hundred years, I might be more golf than everybody else is now, mm-hmm. right? Like I still wear the visor. Like the visor 20 years ago, <laughs> the visor 20 years ago was the golf thing, right? Wait, so how did the visor like start? You just always do My dad you? always wore a visor, and I thought I just wanted to be like my dad when you were a kid, right? Mm-hmm. And so I also do have a big head of hair and a big head, so it just makes practical sense too. So when something actually is a cool style, and practical, it makes it even better. Now, what's not practical is probably the, the sun damage I might have on top of my head when I'm done, but I make sure to put sunscreen up there. But you sunscreen your head you when you spray it? Oh yeah, I use spray and just kind of like wash it in. Like, also, like you don't food. you don't have the like aggressive hat. forehead line. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, noticed, I, don't, I don't. I don't have a theory of why not. I, I would just say I'm blessed. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you like spend enough time not wearing a hat or something. Maybe Do you ever not so. wear a hat, or you always wear the hat? I usually wear a hat. I usually always wear a hat. Or, I mean, You're con- visor, contractually visor, obligated yeah. to wear a hat? Uh, on the golf course, in tournaments, yes. You know, or photo shoots or any sort of mm-hmm. like public appearance that I'm doing for a specific brand, yes. But, you know, it comes down to, as I wanted to wear a visor, and I only wanted to wear an Imperial visor, right? Because they're the t- original That's tour the visor. visor. They're the visor, yeah. right? So we go to Imperial. Like, I didn't wait for Imperial to come to me and say, we want you to wear the tour visor. So, like, that's... That's why I feel like it's a little bit my, what you were saying earlier is it's more authentic, approachable, what a different, it's the way me and my team went about this was, these are the things that I like, let's go capture them instead of sit back and wait for someone to pay me to do something. Like I had a lot of clothing brands that when I left, you know, approached me and I approached it. 
And so I did it back. I, I approached Imperial about the visors. Like when Nike quit making clubs, I wanted to use Mizuno's. And so then we approached Mizuno about a contract. And so I just went about it that way where a lot of people feel, a lot of people, if, whether they're not passionate, whether they don't know, whether they just don't care, it doesn't matter. They wait for someone to want to be a part of them, which is a lot harder route than reaching out and saying, I love your product, I love your brand, I love what you do, here's what I do, how can we make it work together? Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of the path I took. It's obviously more authentic for you and like really endorsing something that I you believe care about. in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so much easier, it's so much easier. Like I, I, for a quick example with Imperial, I, want, I got some visors made, right? Well, then I was like, well, I'm gonna look at their website. Like I saw they had terry cloth full visors. So, like, well, this is, why don't, that's awesome. Can you make some of that? Like, well, yeah, nobody's ever asked us, right? And, and that's- On what, tour, like yeah, no that's, one's that's what I get all the time is no one's asked for that before. No one's done that before. No one's ever approached us about that. Yeah. That is the difference, right? Like they're so used, everybody's cookie cutter. This is the way you're, you should be. This is what we think golf is. Does that come from the agents though? Is, is the team the one that says, this is like how we go about this? We do this and then we get so-and-so's attention and then we, you know. A, I think it's this typical human nature of the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. And B, I think it's, we get told growing up just focus on golf because that is, that's your job. And a lot of people just say like, you know, I just want to play golf, like whatever. Well, that's fine. Like, I just want to play golf too, but I also enjoy these other things. Mm -hmm. So I'm, when, I don't think about golf from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. So what do I fill my other time with is stuff I enjoy and I just happen to enjoy those things and then I reach out to them. So I don't think it's specifically the team. I don't think it's specifically the player. I don't think it's specifically the brand. I just think when you combine all those three things and no one really has a, a strong opinion or a strong belief in, in a specific thing, then it's just kind of like whatever's the most convenient, easiest path of least resistance. Yeah, yeah. I think it's smart. Now all you need to do, you know, for your Rolex deal is like, uh, you know, win a couple majors and you're fine. Well, it, but but then I'd be then I'd be pigeonholing only one yeah, of those. That's true. So. That's true. This way you're flexible. That's a good point. Good point. I would say you're in a good business to be a connoisseur when it comes to like wine and nice things and watches and pretty much all aligns with golf pretty nicely, right? And also, it, private it also, jets. I, mean, I don't know. It what? also aligns with the sponsors of golf too. Mm -hmm. Most people that, you know, most of my sponsors, they obviously play golf and they are in golf for a reason. And I played with this guy last week. He's extremely successful in the business world. He's good at golf. I'm gonna, I can give him a hard time. He, <laughs> he hit some seriously bad shots so we had to work on a swing in the middle of the Amex product. <laughs> but he did a podcast and he talked about how golf connects people because if you go to a business meeting and you're meeting with two CEOs, like they don't remember how fun the meeting was in the office. It was just like work. But if you meet two people at a place like, you know, LACC or Bel Air or Riviera, where it's so, you're so excited to be there, and then you happen to talk business for five hours, like you can't do that. You can't talk about business for five hours in the office unless you're just gonna, you know. Unless you're insane. Exactly. But you can, you can mix it up with golf. You have all this time between shots and everything. And it, and it connects people in a way that you don't feel, like it connects you in a way that you don't feel forced, right? You feel like you're both enjoying something at the same time, however you can add some to it. And so a lot of people in golf, they, they like wine, they 
you know, they obviously are members of nice clubs, if they're CEOs of places. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it, it, you can mesh it all together into a great business opportunity. I always think about, about a round of golf. We would never spend this much time together without this thing holding us together. Like if I'm, you know, doing something for business or whatever. And you get to see so many aspects of someone's personalities like through a round of golf, like how they handle frustration or like how they handle stress, how they like celebrate good things. How they treat a caddy, how yeah. they tip a caddy. Yeah. You know, you, you, you find out how, you know, how you know, do they mark the ball a little farther away from the mark? <laughs> you know, do they ground their club in the sand? Like you can find out a lot about a person, how they handle adversity, how they handle, you know, yeah. celebrations, how they treat people all in a five hour period of golf. Yeah. Are they outgoing? Are they robotic? Whatever. And maybe we're just doing a really damn good job at justifying what we love doing. But at the same time, I think tons of business deals have been made that way at the same time. So I was like, oh, what's your plan in LA? And you're like, well, I'm gonna play with some friends. We're gonna do this. Do you get a chance to go out and play golf for fun? I mean, do you enjoy doing that? Yesterday was a good balance of fun and- And And work? And work. Because on an off week, I like to stay sharp, but I don't, I can't grind every day. Because then, you know, I'm, I'm on the West Coast for, six straight weeks, and I'm gonna play five out of those six weeks. Mm-hmm. So like, if I grind every day, I'll be mentally and physically exhausted by the end of the trip. Mm-hmm. But I also don't wanna take just seven days off cold. So yesterday, I went out and played LACC, played with some awesome guy, I played with David Wright, and Jared Goff, and Kelly wow. James. And we had a great time, we had a great match. You know, talking to... Wait, Jared's not spending the winter in uh, Detroit? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. No. And he may end up making a putt on 18 to beat us. He, he wow. made a gross birdie on 18, LACC, to clip us by one. And I obviously gave him shots. <laughs> but, you know, How's this game? Is he, is he yeah, good? Yeah, he's good. He's, yeah. we, we had to strengthen his grip a little bit. He was, <laughs> he was hitting it out to the right. But, you know, it's amazing to see all those guys, how much they love playing golf, because it's fun but it, it, it keeps their competitive nature in check, right? Like they don't feel like they're not doing anything in their off time. Like I can, I'm having fun, having a good time, enjoying this, but also scratching that competitive edge. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's why the NBA guys like it so much too. And everyone that retires in the NBA is like obsessed with golf. I mean, MJ is like the number one example of fueling competitive you know, desires through golf. Funny how people get into golf later. Like most everybody plays all the sports at a young age and then like, and, and then they, and they, you know, just kind of wean off of it. And then they pick up golf and then all they do is golf. Like when I was in high school, all my buddies, you know, getting baseball scholarships, football scholarships, playing the basketball team, whatever. And I was just playing golf and they would, you know, give me a hard time on the weekends and they were hanging out and I was playing golf. And now it's flipped. All they want to do is play golf. And I'm home, I'm like, guys, I just, I don't want to play golf. Like, let's go do something else. And it's the roles have completely reversed. And I feel like that is, the good thing about golf is because like you can play it forever, but the hard thing is it is slow mm-hmm. for a young kid. When, and your wife doesn't want you out playing golf, like. Well, she knows it's on, my job. So uh, well, I mean, on, on off weeks maybe <laughs> when you have a choice, but that's true. I mean, you're in like kind of a interesting situation with where you're at in your career and everything. And I imagine you're not getting like harassed all the time. I mean, maybe on the internet, but in real life, you can relatively move through real life without people bothering you all the time, right? Is there ever a moment where you're on a plane and you're like, I just can't talk about it? What's your like fake plane job? Is the plane, here's a good plane story. Recently, I was flying to Hawaii a couple weeks ago for the Sony Open and sitting in the plane, the guy, and I'm, I already got my headphones in, the guy leans over and he's like, what are you, uh, 
you know, you going to Hawaii for, you live there or are you going for vacation? And I just responded to work. He's like, okay. I put my headphones back in. And then uh, he, he, I hear him ask like five minutes later, he goes, so what kind of work you do? And I remember, I remember hearing it barely, faintly in my, through my headphones. I was like, I'm just going to pretend that I didn't hear him because I got my headphones in. <laughs> and so I did that. And then I get off off the plane like we're leaving after a 10-hour flight. And the guy goes, excuse me, sir, excuse me, sir. I'm like, God, here we go again. I turn around. He's holding my iPad. <laughs> <laughs> that guy saved like, you. I was like, wow. Like, I feel so bad. <laughs> like, I just blatantly ignored this guy. Well, not blatantly. I had an excuse, but not really. And then he found my iPad. Have you been down that road before where you're like, oh, I play golf or whatever? And I have. And then it's like, here we and go. Like, oh, yeah, where, you know, what club What club are you a pro at? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you, you get all these sorts of questions. And the best is, what do you do for work? I was like, I play golf. And people look at you like... Like you're joking. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Because like, I don't say I'm a professional golfer because it just <laughs> comes off weird, right? Yeah. Like, I play golf. That's what I do for work. And like, what do you mean you play golf for work? It's like, what do you mean? What do I mean? Right? And then you go down this like, kind of like... You know, I can pull the, you know, however I want to, like, pull the conversation around. And if you had more of a hat line, like a tan line, <laughs> I think everyone would, you know. Well, I'll tell you what, the first time I ever <laughs> felt like I couldn't do it, I went to a Georgia football game, and I wore a Georgia visor. That was a lot. Because, like, I'm in, you know, in the home state, in the town, and, you know, you feel it. Like, I'm in the football game, like, crushing beers. Like, I don't, the last thing I need to be doing is being, like, having my eyes in public on me. Like, I am, we're having way too much fun. Like, you know, look at that guy. He's I can't believe he's a professional athlete. Look how much money, you know. But outside of that, it's it's pretty good. And plus, living in Sea Island, there's 30 professional golfers down there. Like, it's just the thing. It's like seeing a celebrity out here in L.A. Like, it just doesn't matter. And that's kind of a great thing about it. Yeah. We saw Dustin Hoffman the other day getting my kids ice cream, and he was in the ice cream store with us, and I was like, that's pretty good sighting, you know, but you just don't say anything. Because it's, it's like, L.A. Like, it's yeah. just like code of conduct. Yeah. You have to resist it, right, because you're cooler than... Saying you hope so. Yeah. And that's what I always, always wonder. How many people actually went up to Dustin versus how many people recognized him? Yeah. And that's the, that's the, the always the unknown, yeah, right? Yeah. So do you see a lot of professional golfers on Sea Island? I mean, Sea Island's like so small too, right? It, oh yeah. It, that's why I've been there. The facilities, the culture. When I was maybe out of college, like I had a lot of fun in college and was not very dedicated because I didn't really see the light yet. Um, Dedicate, just, dedicated to what? To golf yeah. as much. But I also didn't see what it could bring me and what it could provide me. <clears throat> you're playing in college, you're playing for, you're playing with your buddies. You're not playing for your rent check. Yeah. So once I kind of got over that little threshold, I was fine. But that's one of the reasons I moved to Sea Island was everyone around me would be doing exactly what I was doing and it would help me grow. Where if I lived, moved back up in Chattanooga, I'd be the only professional golfer there, so I'd be practicing by myself and then hanging out with my buddies after work. Yeah. Where in Sea Island, like, I'm scheduling my days around all my friends who are working and doing the same thing, trying to reach the same goal. Average. How do you guys do that? Like, how does that even happen? You just, you just play golf with each other all the time. Like, oh, we yeah. just have games. We practice. My coach is down there. My trainer's down there. My agent's down there. You know, you have four courses. All of them are tough. Yeah. Um, the weather's, I mean, I would say Sea Island's probably the best weather 12 months a year on the East Coast. Farther south you go, it's worse in the summer. When the gnats come out. Yeah, you know? well, yeah. <laughs> I'm always like, when the weather's perfect on Sea Island, the gnats come out, and you're like, I can't believe this is happening. I feel like I'm getting immune to it, but there's still some days that you're just like, I'm out. I'm out. I just can't do it. it, it probably, it's probably five days a year where, you, where it's bad. 
all in all, you should never avoid a place like <laughs> yeah. that just because of, you know. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, Sea Island just has a place like the history of it and must be nice to live there with, with the exception of like not having a major airport nearby. Brunswick goes to Atlanta and you can get to Atlanta <laughs> anywhere in the world yeah, in one connection. True. And they have the, the nice airport, the Brunswick East, if you want to call it. Oh, the St. Simon's Airport. Oh, yeah. And you can get home real quick. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point, T. I, my brain doesn't even think that. You're, that's a very, very valid point. It's, when I was moving down there, everybody said, it's so hard to travel out of Seattle, and why are you traveling down there? It's like, if I get to where I want to go, it's the easiest place in the world to travel out of. I can drive my golf cart two minutes <laughs> to the airport. That's pretty amazing. That's a good goal. I like, I like, I like where your head's at with that. This was really fun. It was cool to chat with you. The only thing I left out there floating is like some golf tips, but you know, you haven't seen my terrible game, so. <laughs> Here's my one question for you, okay? How do you go from like a bad moment? How do you turn your head off in a bad moment and get past it? I'm still working on it. It's a great question because it's the unanswered thing in golf because it actually happens in every single part of your life that you just you know, you try to, but you usually don't have such a quick turnaround in golf that it matters so much. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of gotten to the point where I get more upset after the round if I cost myself mental mistakes than I get upset in the moment for hitting a bad shot. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I hit a bad seven iron, I'm pissed about that seven iron that I hit the next, you know, three putt because of that, and then I hit a bad drive on the next one. After the round and kind of assess it, like I'm more upset at myself for costing Lots of shots, points, strokes, money, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it for getting upset about it than I am in the moment. Mm -hmm. So now I realize, like, look, I hit a bad shot, but my how mad I am now for hitting that bad shot is not the level of angry that I would feel if I made the next shot, if I made a, ne a poor decision on the next shot because of it. So that helps you, like, rein it in. It helps me rein it in because I know that as mad as I am now, I'll actually be more mad if I let it affect me. So yeah, I'm terrible at golf, uh, relatively speaking, but I'll go out and get so mad about some double bogey or something, and then there's a lot of times I've like looked at the scorecard and be like, I still had a good round. The doubles like didn't kill me, but I get so pissed off when I'm playing, you know, like, it's all over, that's it, I'm done. I can't do this. And I have nothing on the line, right? <laughs> exactly. You have everything on the line. And that's why I always ask people, you're out here to have fun. And uh, you, you might be a competitive person, or you might you know might have a bet with your buddy that you're trying to beat. But at the end of the day, like you're out here to have fun. So like have fun doing it. Like I don't. There's again, there's nothing wrong with getting frustrated with yourself if you don't do something right. You do that with that's just human nature. The people that let it actually not only affect their quality of their day, but also their quality of their game. I, I question if, they're, if they have some sanity up there sometimes. Because <laughs> like what I see, what I have to go through to combat that, and it does matter. Yeah. The people that it doesn't matter, and then how see they do, I'm like, man, I'm not glad you're not a professional golfer. <laughs> it illustrates just like how special where you are in your career and your life and to be able to do this and like how special and unique it is. I don't think people generally understand how rare it is and unique to be at the level that you're at and just play on the PJ Tour. It's so difficult to do and it's such a small number of people and like to handle that, you know, you have no one else. There's no team to bail you out, you know? Right. It, you can like play bad in the NFL and like still win. And still have a contract for the next couple of years yeah. or, you know, it, it's all on you. It's it's yearly, it's it's difficult, it's, it's I mean, it's awesome. Like I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't rather be doing anything else. And the fact that I get to 
I was telling my wife the other night, I just had to pinch myself for the opportunities that I've had through the game. Like for playing with Jared Goff and David Wright yesterday. Like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> if I was anybody else in this world other than a professional golfer, that wouldn't happen, right? If I was going to Pebble Beach and having dinner with these CEOs, you know, talking about how I can help grow their company through a sponsorship, that wouldn't happen if I was just a regular employee yeah. at their company. Yeah. And, and, cool. and being appreciative of the game itself because of that is is so cool and you know it's something that I, even after bj tour pro i'll still be able to play golf and enjoy the rounds with friends and yeah. whether it be as important or not started as a hobby do i sure hope it's going to finish as one as well just like everything else i enjoy in life yeah it's cool well it's been nice talking to you thanks so much for taking the time absolutely should we go in and uh get yeah, some high, high twist pants <laughs> here let's go check out some sid mashroom stuff <laughs>